Mm-hmm. Okay. What's your vision for today? We got to like ease into things. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt's not here today, so this is all going to sh- you listen you showed up late and now our banter is just going off into unusable directions i mean my god oh can we talk about how you required basically a manual version of 2fa for me to send you a text (laughs) yes yes so you you texted me the other day to my phone and i went i'm so sorry who is this and you go oh it's emily and i go cool great and then I went to Slack and I messaged you and I said, did you just text me? I just want you to know that this is the first time it's happened. But I, I respect the uh, diligence there. I feel like you probably yeah. do that. Do you do that in real life, too, with people that you meet? Uh, like, not all the time. I mean, I did do it to a painter that showed up at our house two days ago. What? Because we we're having our kitchen done. Yep. A guy showed up. He goes, hi, I'm the painter. And I said, cool, just a minute. And I went and I called the general contractor and I said, did you send a painter to the house? And he told me no. And so I went back and I sent the painter away. I said, you don't belong here. That's next level. So he fell on the wrong side of identity verification for me. <laughs> wow. See, I would just invite them in. I'd be like, can I get you a glass of water? Do you need tea or coffee? You're, this is, yeah, yep. I should probably... Take this as a lesson and incorporate some of your manual 2FA into my life. It's fun. It's fun. I've, I've done it twice now in, in recent memory, but I don't normally. Although I do do it to Shiner sometimes because, of course, we all get spam yes. from Shiner. Yes. Phishing attacks from people pretending to be our CEO asking for various pieces of information from us. I remember the first time I got the Shiner text. I thought, wow, I am so important right now. I've I've made it. He needs me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Listen, why don't we get into this episode a little bit? So this one's a little bit different. Obviously, it's just the two of us, uh, which I think we make a great dynamic duo. So this is probably going to be the highest rated episode we've ever churned out. But we're not doing... Doing Watchtower Weekly or games this week. We're going to do some interviews. You're going to talk to us about some new stuff that we've got going on. Uh, so, okay. We have partnered with Gen G, which is a leading esports org, to offer our communities the chance to participate in a browser based online gaming experience. This is our first time doing this. As part of the event, you have the chance to win some great prizes, including some Amazon gift cards, one password families memberships, and even a PlayStation 5, which I would like, but I'm not allowed to enter. <laughs> I don't know what the rules are, one password fam. I don't know. <laughs> Over the course of three weeks, we invite you to try your luck solving a series of puzzles and compete in the quest for the lost console. When you complete each unique puzzle, and there are seven in total, you'll be eligible to move to the next stage of the game when it's released. With each stage of competition, the puzzles become more challenging, making it that much harder to proceed to the next level. To help you on your adventure, honorary game masters will share special hints when each new puzzle is released, and there's quite the lineup. If you're ready to get started on your quest, we'll start by setting the scene. You find yourself in front of an old mansion. The grand prize, a coveted console, is hidden somewhere deep inside. To complete your quest, you'll have to move from room to room and overcome complex puzzles and obstacles. Looking around, you see your competitors. You're all here for glory and the grand prize, but you aren't afraid of a little hard work. Armed with determination, skill, and grit, you step forward with confidence. This prize is yours for the taking. 
And you are all in luck because we have a podcast-exclusive clue for Puzzle 4, which is located in the wine cellar. It's perfect that it's in the wine cellar. That makes sense. That's on brand for me. (laughs) And here's your clue. Cracking the code might be easier if you knew what to look for. So I'm going to repeat it one more time. Cracking the code might be easier if you knew what to look for. That's the clue? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Uh, You know, back in the day, I played a lot of games like Myst and stuff. Did you? Oh, my God, yes. And I would, like, I had nothing else going on in my life because I was 12. And so I would take, like, you know, copy. I had, like, notebooks, reams of notes. Be like, okay, well, I just saw this. That's going to come into play later. Like, I just trying to solve these crazy puzzles, you know, that spanned huge swaths of digital territory. I'm guessing this would probably be that. Except that now I'm 40-something. And what am I, 42 now? I'm 41? I don't know. This is not your diary entry. It's fine. And like, I don't have time to do this. Like, so even though I would love to do something like this, I can't dedicate the mental capacity to solving these things. But I'm excited that someone's going to. If you haven't seen some of the amazing design work, I highly recommend you go and visit this site. So if you want to do that or you're ready to join the quest and challenge your puzzle solving skills and win some great prizes, you can find that at onepasswordconsolequest.gg. That's onepasswordconsolequest.gg. It's awesome. I'm excited. This is neat. We haven't we haven't really done stuff like this before. This is cool. I know. The brand team, there's a couple folks there who worked so hard on it, and it's beautiful. I've seen some of the, the designs, the artwork. It's gorgeous. They've really done a lot of work on it. And they've got some big-time gamers who are involved as well. Yeah. This is people's jobs now, going and playing games. I love it. I know. It's crazy. Wait, are you interviewing Christina Warren? I am. I did. What? It was great. Yes. <gasps> yes. I'm such a, f- uh, can I say fangirl? Because that's yes. what I am. Oh, I'm so jealous. Are you really? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no, she was great. I, Christina and I have the, the Venn diagram of, of our social circles has overlapped for many, many years. I don't know that we've ever actually talked to each other directly. So it was cool just to sort of like talk and catch up so what you're saying is you're also a fangirl of christina warren (laughs) (laughs) joining me on the show today is christina warren not only is christina a writer speaker and fellow podcaster she is also senior developer advocate at github Today, we're going to dive into building open source communities as part of GitHub's Maintainer Month, a month for open source maintainers to gather, share, and be celebrated. Christina, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. I'm really excited to get to talk to you and talk about open source and Maintainer Month and all those things. You have what I would consider to be a fairly storied career so far. For folks that may not know your history, do you want to give people a bit of a background on you and how you landed at GitHub? Sure. So I've been at GitHub. I'm actually fairly recent at GitHub. I joined at the end of March. So basically since April, I've been at GitHub. And before that, I was at Microsoft for about five years, also in developer advocacy. But before that, how if anyone is listening, if anybody does know me, if if they're aware of me, it's usually because I was a business and technology journalist for about a decade before I got into DevRel. So I did what is it's not completely uncommon, but it's not, I would say, the common track of, of leaving journalism to go into working with product teams and engineering teams. That's usually not what people end up leaving 
media to do that I've been writing and, and using and blogging, podcasting, doing video stuff about technology. Gosh, I mean, since I was in college and I now get to do that, but, you know, as my job. That's the dream, quite honestly, is to do that stuff, to find the stuff that you're passionate about and that you're good at and then have that be your job. So congratulations on that. That's awesome. Can you talk to me a little bit about GitHub's role in open source and your and your view of GitHub's role in open source? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So, I mean, I think that we are sort of the facilitator. We're the hub. It's in our name, right, so to speak, where people can go to share their projects, regardless of what open source license they're under, and contribute, communicate, file issues, use it as a discussion platform. That's actually an interesting thing, too. I think we're going to talk more about this, is that there are people and products and software developers who use GitHub as a place to connect with users, even if they don't have all their source code on GitHub. And so I think that GitHub is kind of the center of the developer universe and, and where people can go, not just to store their code and run various CI and CD workflow things and be part of their build process, but really part of the development process, both with internal teams, but also with other people. And I think that what's great about GitHub is that it's designed to work for indie developers and smaller project teams, open source groups, as well as larger companies. So it's one of the few places out there where you as an individual can oftentimes make a pull request to a bigger project that might be maintained by a larger company and have an impact. Or if you're one of those larger companies, you can find other projects that you could integrate into what you're doing or also contributing code back to, to what smaller people are doing too. So I, I think that that's where I see GitHub's role with, with open source. It's so interesting as you were sort of going through that description, I'm thinking of all the different ways that I do and have used GitHub in the past. And like, you know, I Currently, it is hosting my personal website, which was mm -hmm. great to be able to go and set that up. And then I also know that a large swath of the developers on our team are going out and making contributions and submitting pull requests against larger open source projects that we make use of inside of 1Password. And so the surface area of GitHub is considered to be fairly large and like widespread in its utility and sort of what it what it provides out into the community. Yeah. I mean, I think this is what's so interesting to me about GitHub is that it's almost like it's two different things, but at the same time, I mean, at one sense, it is a source code repository and, and makes it easy for people to use Git and collaborate on their projects. And you could do that through, you know, private repos or, you know, things that are closed off just to certain team members or you can do it more out in the open. But it's also this massive community aspect where people can discover projects, they can submit their own pull requests. People can fork if they want to take something in a different direction. We have GitHub discussions, which is a great way for people to issue feedback and to talk about things in a way that sometimes can be a little bit difficult in the typical pull request workflow. Sometimes it's not always conducive to that. So to me, it's kind of two things. It can be this great place to host your blog. I do the same thing where it can actually kind of be an entire workflow where you make a commit an action kicks off and it's going to update your blog wherever it's hosted. And you could set up, you know, build commands that way too within your larger software projects. But then it's also this community space and this collaborative space beyond just what you're doing, you know, maybe with the code day to day in terms of testing and, and building. Yeah, indeed. So you touched a little bit on companies hosting open source projects and maintaining open source projects. Can you talk a little bit about your view of 
closed source companies that are for profit, but also make valuable contributions to open source projects and communities? Yeah, honestly, I think it's great. I think that there are some people who approach open source from a strictly ideological point of view, and I can understand that and I respect that. But I think that there is another group of people who might understand and say, look, for this particular development process and for this project or for this library or this component, it really does make sense for this to be open to the public, both because we want to contribute, but also maybe because we want to pull in other ideas and we think that it could be useful or we want to have a way to connect with our community. And so I think it makes sense. I think that there is absolutely no reason why for-profit closed source companies can't have a presence and can't be part of open source when it makes sense for them to do that. I think that the more that companies do that, frankly, the more possibility it is that the more things will be open source and that more things will be available to everyone because people can see the benefits. Also, frankly, as great as it would be from like just pie in the sky, this is if everything could be perfect scenario for most software to be open source. There are some practical realities why companies who might not be ideologically opposed to making their source code available don't have it in the open. And that can be for a couple of reasons, right? Like maybe it's a case where some of the code that they're using has been licensed in a different way and they got it from someone else and they just don't have the rights to have it out there. But another part and something we don't talk about enough and we're, we're going to be talking about a little bit with you know Maintainer Month is that when you do make code open there is this implicit agreement that you're also going to be offering some support to that code. Now, that is not something that every person who makes a project open source has to do. And in fact, some people are are quite clear in the readme files saying, look, this is for your use only. I'm not going to provide support. It works for me. Take what you want, you know, fork if you want to, but I'm not here to offer any, any bug fixes or anything. But I think that for larger companies, that's a difficult position to hold, right? Like, I think that there is an expectation from the community and not a wrong one that says, okay, if we're a very large company, then we need to make sure that we are supporting what we're putting out there. And the truth of the matter is, is that as we all know, if you're working on a big code base, not all aspects of that are going to be ideal to be revealed to the public. Some things are going to be really messy. Some things will be poorly documented. Some things might be using older stuff that has been deprecated. And so there is, I understand this, you know, a massive amount of work that can go into deciding to make something open source. And so I understand sometimes why companies, GitHub included, don't open source everything they do. But I do think that if you have the opportunity to open source components of what you're doing, if you have an SDK or if you have APIs and you have examples of ways you can make things interoperable, that having those things available for others to look at, contribute to, fork and and use in their own projects, that's really, really beneficial. And in that way, we get away from some of the ideological purity that can sometimes dissuade people from getting involved at all and make it easier for people and for companies to get involved on their own terms. And hopefully, if they have a good experience, become more involved and design things the next time from the ground up to be more open if they find it beneficial to what they're doing. That responsibility that you talked about is something that has been a part of all of our conversations as we have over the years talked about things that we want to open source and things that we have open sourced from 1Password. That conversation around like, okay, if we're doing this, we have to support this. Like we can't just... right. You can't just throw it over the wall. Just throw this out into the ether and like, it's going to be fine. Like, no, like 
who who is dedicated to this now? Like, are we willing to take on this responsibility? And sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. And it's sort of like the central crux anytime anyone brings up like, oh, we should open source this. It's sort of like the next question of like, great, are you going to support that? Right. (laughs) So I think it's really hugely important for companies to ask themselves that. No, I totally agree. And I I think it's one of those things that you need to think about before you go into it, because some places do honestly just throw it over the wall. And then what happens is that if someone has a problem and is trying to use something, if it's not maintained, if it's not well documented, then it can be more trouble than it's worth, right? And I think that any developer, anybody who's ever relied on other people's stuff, which is most of us, has run into those situations. But if you're a larger company, you're you're public facing in a certain extent, and you have customers out there too, that's a bad look. And that's something that can also create more support requests, even if you are pretty adamant about the fact that you're not going to support it. That's not going to stop people from reaching out. So I think that, yeah, you're right. This is something you have to think about the responsibility from the beginning and have people who are going to own that story and have contingency plans if those people move on to other things. I tend to think as well, I think it's more difficult in some senses to open source something that's been, you know, closed off and has been developed for a long time than it is to if you're initiating a new project at that time say, okay, we would like this to be open source. And whether you develop it completely in the open or not, that can be up for choice. But at that point, realizing, okay, as we're building this out, make sure we're doing the right things with our documentation and that we're getting in the right processes so that when we do put this open source, it will be easier for us to maintain internally and to support others using as well. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Let's turn our attention to maintainer month. Let's level set everyone first. What is maintainer month and why are you excited about it in particular? Yeah. So maintainer month is in June and it is kind of our opportunity to talk about and support people who are maintaining open source projects. And what's great about it is that it's an opportunity for open source maintainers to gather and to to share and also to be celebrated because it is one of the most important things in the open source ecosystem are the people who are maintaining those projects. And being a maintainer doesn't mean that you are always necessarily the person who's committing the most code, but you are the person who is doing a lot of the janitorial work. You know, you're closing the issues, you're making sure things are organized, you're deciding what to commit and what not to commit, you're making sure things are for upstream if that's what you're doing. And that's a lot of work. And a lot of it I don't think is appreciated enough by the mooches like me who are taking advantage of those projects. And so what Maintainer Month is all about is celebrating the people who are doing that work and, you know, kind of like making it clear that that doesn't all happen in a vacuum. But also, I think giving the maintainers the opportunity to talk to one another, to share best practices, and to learn from one another. Because In addition to, I think that's one of the best ways we learn, right? I think this is why I like open source so much is that you can see what other people are doing and you can learn from it. And that's even true when it comes to maintaining a project. But oftentimes we work in our own silos and we think, oh, well, you know, this is just a problem that I'm having. And this is just something that I struggle with. But if you talk to more people, you realize, oh, actually a lot of people are struggling with this. And that can make the process feel less alienating. And it can also be a great way to come up with solutions and to maybe learn from what other people have done correctly. Or if they want to share out, hey, you know, I did this and it didn't work out. And this is what I've learned from it. So I think it's a great way for maintainers to really be able to collaborate and discuss and have kind of a safe space together. But also for us as a broader open source community to celebrate all the really, really hard work that they do. I have to imagine 
that part of maintainer month there will be an award ceremony and you'll be giving out golden small octocat statuettes to people for you know most prs reviewed or most issues closed and stuff like that (laughs) but barring that what other activities are taking place throughout the month? Yeah, so we've got a bunch of um, of, of meetups and things happening um, online, obviously, because we want this to be global and maintainership is global, right? I think that's what is really interesting to me is people that many times are collaborating on the same project who are in completely different parts of the world. That's one of the things that's really amazing about the internet and about open source is that that's possible. So we're going to have things set up in different countries and in different time zones. You know, we're going to have Twitter spaces. There are going to be some events, for instance, happening with the Portuguese developer communities. There's going to be a conference uh, called Upstream, which is a virtual and, and free event that is going to be bringing together like-minded developers and, and open source maintainers and extended networks of people, various, you know, kind of podcasts will be out kind of talking about stuff and there will be live streams. So there's going to be a lot of activities around Maintainer Month happening in the virtual realm. And and I think what we're also seeing, you know, like the podcast I'm on right now, you know, that other people in the community are also going to do their own things too, which is great because it's not just one thing. What's great about having something like this, if it takes hold, is that other people in the community will create their own activities and their own things around it too. Which is so intrinsically linked to that open source spirit anyway, right? Exactly. Take what's already out there, improve upon it, and put it out into the world. So that's that's really cool. Totally. We've had similar success. There's a, a something called Hacktoberfest, which happens every October. And a number of companies are involved in that. And even companies that aren't official sponsors oftentimes participate and do things around it, which is so fantastic. And so I, I hope that, you know, Maintainer Month that has that similar spirit, right? That people kind of recognize, hey, we want to celebrate this stuff too. We want to create our own content or or events or spaces or or streams around this too. That's awesome. So what companies or teams come to mind as as ones that you think embody amazing open source participation? Oh wow, that's a that's a great question. So when I think of large companies, there are so many answers I could give on this. I worked at Microsoft for a long time and so I think they do a great job, but I'm actually going to say I think Google. You know, I think Google deserves a lot of the credit that they get for being one of the the first big large companies that really embrace open source. And they continue to do that, right? Like a lot of their stuff is on GitHub. They continuously will take things and donate them to larger open source foundations, you know, Kubernetes, which has been eating the world for the last five or six years, came from Google and Google then donated it to the CNCF, which is part of the Linux Foundation. They recently did the same thing with Knative. And I think that Google is a company that really, I think from its inception, understood the value in open source participation. Now, to be clear, what's interesting about Google, because you look at at stuff that they kind of pioneer, languages like Go and projects like Chromium, things like Android, that doesn't mean that they don't maintain strict control over what they are doing. Because to be clear, you know, the Chromium project is, even though it has other people who are contributors as well, is a largely Google-led initiative. The, the same is true for, for the Go language. But it still is something that I think has been able to pull in contributors from outside and really grow because of that. When I think about teams and about projects that I think are run really well from an open source perspective, I think about the Rust project. I think that the Rust language and the way that they work 
is very impressive. And I think that the stuff that they do in terms of how they collaborate and how they have their teams running is very, very impressive. Python as well, right? Python is, is at this point, like one of our oldest, most venerable languages. And it has really, for many people, kind of set the standard for how a project can be run well and how people can contribute from all different walks of life. Python is particularly amazing to me because it's almost like you have three different versions of Python. You have the scripting environment, you have people who are using it as a web framework, and you also have the absolutely exploding you know, data science and, and AI model for it. And so the fact that all those groups together can collaborate and work together and then create ecosystems is fantastic. And Rust, you know, it's it's a lower level language, but similarly, it's newer. And I think that similar, I would say to some of the big companies learning from Google, I would say that, you know, languages like, like Rust and, and things like the Node ecosystem have definitely learned from Python. Those are great answers. I hadn't even thought of Google. I think it's because it's how long it's been out in the world and how mainstream things like Android and Chrome are. And of course, that they both feel very commercial. Yeah. That I think I just, I forgot that they have their roots in open source, so it wouldn't have even come to mind. Christina, we, we've covered a lot of ground today. Where can people go to find out more about you or GitHub or GitHub Maintainer Month? Yeah, so you can go to maintainermonth.github.com if you want to learn more about Maintainer Month. There's a schedule there of all the different meetups and live streams and events that are happening. There's also a great library of various guides that we've put together around open source topics. There's also links to the, the talks that have happened, the Maintainer Month Summit from last Last year. So that's a great place to go. If you want to know more about me, I'm on Twitter at film underscore girl. You can also find me at GitHub. My username is film girl, but it's all one word. My code contributions, because a lot of the stuff I do is mostly playing around or is built in, you know, repos that are internal. So there's not a lot of code that you're going to get from me, but I will say this. My stars, which is there's a GitHub feature where you can star projects that you find interesting. I have to be honest. My stars are absolutely awesome. I am, even if that makes me sound cocky, I don't care. Like the the things that I find are really good. So if you follow me on GitHub, follow me because I find good stuff and, and, and find interesting projects. But even there, if you just want to go to github.com slash filmgirl and click on my stars tab, you can see and, and browse through the various cool projects and a variety of things. So 2,300 of them. Uh, it mm-hmm. turns out that's really mm-hmm. something. Yeah. Uh, what I need to do is I'm going, I have a plan actually, and actually this will be a good thing. I think maybe for maintainer month, I want to go through and organize them more. We have a, a new feature that's in beta called lists where you can create lists around topics and, and stuff within your stars. And so I'm going to, I think, try to organize them a bit more, but uh, yeah, 2,300 things over a decade plus. <laughs> Amazing. That's great. Currently top of the list is a list of stuff for Panic's new Playdate gaming, yes. handheld gaming console. That's yes. awesome. That's really yeah. cool. I just got my Playdate um, a couple of days ago, and I've been so excited about building something for it. I've never built a game before, and I've never even thought of myself as someone who could be a game developer and what I love about this device is that you can write uh, games for it in, in C, but you can also use Lua, which is a scripting language and is a lot easier for, for people like me to approach. And there's also a great web IDE, but there are also all these great projects that people are putting together of games and of other resources. And I'm just really looking forward to having fun hacking around on it and building a game that might be terrible, but who cares? And, and, and making it available to the world. That's awesome. Really cool. 
All right. Well, Christina, listen, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We didn't just talk to Christina. We also talked to Jody Hevener. Jody works at 1Password. So we did a little bit of This Week at 1Password. Jody built a really cool extension for Visual Studio Code, which is the uh, one of the IDEs that we use here to build software. We'll just probably drop that in here. Dropping by for a bonus segment of This Week at 1Password is Jody Hevener. Jody is here today to discuss the new game-changing Visual Studio Code extension that they have built and all that it has to offer. These are some of my favorite types of interviews to do. Jody, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Nice. Thanks for being here. All right. Start us off. Give us a little bit of background. Like, what have you built? Like, basically, what have you, what have you built? How did it come to be? Tell us what this thing even is. Yeah, so if you're not familiar, VS Code's this really popular, highly extensible editor for programming. And earlier this year, 1Password released some pretty handy developer offerings, notably a brand new CLI, which is a really great way to get programmatic access to your 1Password data. We're trying to encourage custom integrations with our new development tools. And because I often deal with secrets when I'm working in uh, VS Code, things like usernames and passwords, API keys, webhook URLs, like you name it, it was only natural that an extension to integrate 1Password more closely into my workflow was born. Okay, so this was a side project then. This was something that you just built because you were excited about it and wanted to go make something cool. Yeah, so the funny thing is, like, I actually look after our developer portal where you can go and learn about all these fun new things you can do with our developer offerings. And because I also enjoy building fun little side projects in my free time, I started to work on this extension. It got to a point where I could demo it at a tech all hands. And I guess people liked it because shortly after I was invited to work on it full time. And now we're getting ready to launch. That's awesome. That's so cool. I love that. Uh, all right. So what problems were you trying to solve? Like, And I'm, I'm guessing since it was a side project, like you were your own customer here. So like, what were you trying to do? Yeah, I was definitely trying to scratch my own itch here. So I mentioned I deal a lot with secrets in my code. Secrets can be used to connect to third-party vendors or other internal services. Sometimes though, it's it's actually really easy to forget that you've like forgotten to uh, remove a secret when you're testing on a new feature, or maybe you forgot to ignore the environment variables file in Git. And now you've committed your work, you've pushed it up for the world to see. At this point, at best, you've got to rotate your secrets. At worst, you've potentially given bad actors the keys the castle, right? They can do some pretty bad stuff with your services or customer data. So this is really, how do we not put secrets in our code? How do we not have usernames and passwords in our code, whether it's for production services or like testing out stuff against different environments and stuff? This is really just to like get that stuff out of out of your code. Absolutely. Yeah. So the best way to protect your secrets is to not have them in your code at all. And to address that one password introduced this concept of secret references, where you store the secret in your vault, and then you use this URL looking pattern to reference the location of the vault item and the field you want. And this is actually where 1Password for VS Code shines because it integrates really well with secret references. You can do things like create a vault item from one or more selections in your document, and it'll replace the secrets with secret references. You can hover over a reference to inspect the item's details. You can even, you can even click a reference and it'll open, it'll actually open up in 1Password desktop. So it's really tightly coupled to the desktop app. <laughs> okay, that's awesome. So this isn't just like 
gosh, like just you saying like, oh, you can hover over the reference to like see the details of the item and stuff. That's huge. Like this isn't some like you didn't skimp, I guess is what I'm saying. Like there's some there's some like really cool stuff in here. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, one of the features I'm most excited about to tell you about is secret detection. So the extension will actually keep an eye out for little things that could be considered secret in your code while you're working on it. And then as you're working on it, it'll suggest when you should move it into 1Password with a little a little widget above the line that you can just easily click on. So with just a couple of clicks, it'll automatically create a vaults item, it'll replace the real value with a secret reference, and then you can just carry on your way. Oh, that's so cool. Okay, my head's going in like 12 different directions at this point about this. <laughs> All right, so we're headed into the summer. What's like on your roadmap? What are you working on next? What's what's What are the plans for this extension? Yeah, so right now we're about to kick off external beta testing in the next week or so. And after that, the goal is to have a public release available sometime early to mid-June. We'll be putting a lot more details up at developer.onefaster.com, where you can also learn more about building your own integrations and join our developer Slack workspace. Nice. Oh my gosh. Developer.onefaster.com is a thing that we've wanted for a long, long time. And I love that it exists now and stuff like this just lands there very naturally. That's so cool. Absolutely. Okay. So, well, we've talked about where people can go to, to learn more about it. Do they need to do anything special? Would the instructions be there for how to join the beta program for this or the early access for this? Yeah. So just head to the, the developer portal and there will be some instructions on how to join the Slack workspace. And from there, we'll communicate when you're allowed to start beta testing the program or the, the extension. Nice. Okay. Anything else that we should talk about with this fantastic extension? Just like in short, if you're if you're building software and you're using VS Code, and I know a lot of people do, this extension makes it incredibly easy to integrate 1Password into your workflow. It'll help you make sure that your secrets stay secret. Nice. I like that. It's a good tagline. Okay. Well, listen, Jody, thank you so much for coming out today and chatting. Thanks for having me. All right. Last but not least, the giveaway winners. Drum roll. That's right. We have been running this giveaway for a while. We wanted people to tell us the weirdest thing that they store in one password, which I thought was a giant mistake for us to ask people. Okay, well, you should read these and then you have to tell us what the weirdest thing you store is, Rue. All right, maybe. Fine. Okay. We have two winners to announce today. Jonas said it's maybe not that weird, but I have a note section with details on a stolen MacBook. I think that's great. That's a good thing to to store in one password for sure. A little hardware entry there. That's good. And then Jai said, I don't store many weird things, but if I had to pick, it would be a WireGuard config file to my Raspberry Pi VPN. Another like good solid entry, I think. So congratulations to Jonas and Jai. You each win a year of one password for free along with some one password swag. Thank you to everyone that entered. Be sure to tune in as we'll be running more giveaways and chances to win in the future. Okay, wait, Rue. Yes. What's the weirdest thing that you store in 1Password? I journal using 1Password. I have secure notes where I journal there. I have a whole vault just called journal. No way. It's got a little notebook emoji. Yeah, it's weird. I put pictures and stuff in there from like my photo roll. Like, oh, we did this today. And here's the kids splashing in the pool or something that's really sweet what's the weird thing that you store in one password similar to kind of the drafts your your unsent tweets or your drafts ah. like one-liner thoughts that probably are not remarkable or profound but to me they resonate i have a little vault in there for those very nice that's good yeah stupid bad poetry and song lyrics my angsty <laughs> my inner angsty teenager uh, needs to live in one password. That's who lives there. Yeah, I like that. 
it's a safe place to keep an angsty teenager, mm-hmm. uh, your inner <laughs> angsty teenager. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, listen, this was a lot of fun. Short show today. It had so many happy things. I know. I love getting to tell people about all the stuff, the Gen G campaign, a couple of interviews, Rue's Dear Diary entries. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Love you, Emily. Have a great day. Love you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.